Hi, this is Dr. Vicki Bastecki Perez, proud president of Montgomery County Community College, and you're listening to The Kiss Room on Monco Radio, where music and minds meet. gigantic crowd so come early and get yourself a good spot come and see on stage peter ace gene and paul live on our stage come see kiss tonight kiss tonight kiss tonight kiss tonight you wanted the best and you got it Here at the Kiss Room table for Rock and Pod Expo 2021. You can hear behind me, you can hear a lot of activity. There's people everywhere. We're right next to the Metal Summit table. We're right next to the Ages of Rock table. And right now at the Kiss Room table, none other than Anthony Porter from Three Chord Money. Welcome back to the Kiss Room. It's always my pleasure to be on the Kiss Room and hang out with you, the Matt Porter. So, so far, if you're listening to this in the future, we are right now here. It's Saturday. We're at Rock and Pod. You can hear a lot of activity. But really, what has been your favorite part so far? Well, it's just wonderful to see people in real life um, that you listen to. We talk about this all the time is you actually hear voices that you know in your head. I, I, I'm sitting at a table with Candy from Candy's Kiss Corner, who I've never actually met in real life, but I sort of feel like I've known for at least 10 years. And then we're talking, and I had the greatest couple days we got here early Thursday, and then we got so Friday of just hanging out with people. You know, I, I enjoy talking to people about regular things, and I got to go around with um, Eric and Judy from the Electric Crush, who I love to death. We had the greatest time going around Nashville yesterday, just kind of being tourists, and we went to the Country Western Music Hall of Fame. I love that. So that's, I love that. It's just a feeling of community. And that's, um, that's my favorite thing. And that's my favorite thing was I listen to them every week. So you hear their voice every week. Now they're in the car with you. Where should we go to eat? Yeah. What should we do? That's the most fun stuff. Rather really than talking right. rock, you're talking about who's you're got talking, the Uber. Right, who's you know? got an Uber <laughs> app. So, so look, we're having the best time ever. Obviously, we're having a great time. If you're listening in the future and you missed it, you missed it. If not, this is a great souvenir of the fun that we had here at Rock and Pod 2021. You're in the Kiss Room on Monaco Radio, where music and minds meet.
the Kiss Room. We're here at Rock and Pod 2021, having the best time ever. I am here with Andre LaBelle, my first guest of the day. Welcome to the Kiss Room. Hey, man. How you doing? Thanks for having me. Now, look, Andre, anybody that listens to the Kiss Room, they know you're a drummer. I follow you on Facebook. I got to see all that drumming. Yeah, usually with no shirt. Usually with no yeah. shirt. He is wearing a shirt today. All, you, all of your Facebook fans will say, look, he looks good with his shirt. So now look, for people that don't know, how did you get started with drumming? Um, pots and pans. I had to say that because everybody says that. That was it. Pots and pans. So yeah, your, your family had a lot of dented pots and pans, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. It was pots and pans. Yeah. And what age do you start, like, formally drumming? Um, when I was, I started really young, man, because my father was an artist, a painter. And um, I had that influence of art around me since I was a little kid. And I was 10 years old in 1976. That's when KISS was in their heyday. And man, my walls were covered with KISS posters. And I liked uh, the drums and my brother got a guitar and we put a band together. I was playing out in the bars when I was 11, 12 years old. Wow. So this it's all I've ever done, man. And shirtless <laughs> the whole time. <laughs> I'm kidding, man, yeah. So when you think about that, what kind of songs were you and your brother playing? Uh, we were doing a lot of Ted Nugent because nice. my brother was good at playing Ted Nugent. Yeah, we did that and just all the stuff that a cover band would play back in that time. But my brother, Gene LaBelle, he and I um, got on this record from our local radio station, XO 102 in Richmond, Virginia, when I was 13. And um, they uh, played it on the radio all the time. So I'm 13 years old and they're playing our song on the local rock radio station. And it was cool, man. It was good times. That's amazing. Now, were you the popular yeah. kid that everyone Man, wants to know, or what? Well, it's funny. You know, it's like all the all the girls in school, opposed to them liking me, I think they were looking. They were kind of freaked out by it. You know, <laughs> I, I would go to the, uh, to you know, roller skating was big back in the in the late seventies, early eighties, and I'd go to the roller skating ring, and they would play the song there and like announce the drummer from Black Rose, whatever. You know, and I'm thirteen. I'm thinking, man, all the girls are really gonna like me now. And it was the exact opposite. They were like, this guy's freaking me out, man. Maybe and maybe yeah. your satin jacket wasn't in style. Well, I was shirtless. <laughs> that was the problem. <laughs> yeah, man. Oh, so you've been, a, you've been a professional drummer pretty much your entire life. Yeah, hanging in there, no so doubt. So what? Man. now you worked into a lot of session material. What were some of the first gigs you had as a session guy? Um, well, the first, like, gigs... When I moved to Los Angeles, that would be, I mean, notable was uh, recording with Vinnie Vincent. I was referred to him from um, recording, I had recorded with Michael Marnock, the original guitar player from Steppenwolf. And um, he knew Vinnie and referred me to Vinnie. So um, there's, a, I mean, a lot of people to, to mention that probably wouldn't have the name or the, uh, or the, the fame that, that I recorded without. There a lot of demo work and such. But, um, the, the stuff with Vinny is, was the first stuff I did when I was in Los Angeles. You know? So now look, everybody that listens to my show, the Vinny Vincent stories are going to be the gold. That's what they want to hear. Now the funny yeah. thing is right off the bat, Vinny is notorious for not liking live drums. He likes drum machine. Yeah, How do you I mean, deal with that? I'm not even sure that, it's, that he likes drum machine. I think what it is is that Vinny is so particular with what it is that he's trying to record that it's easier for him to just program a drum machine and have that the way he wants it to be. Because, I mean, man, I was in multiple different studios for like a year with the guy when I was recording because uh, he's so meticulous. And that's a blessing and a curse, man. I mean, it's 
it's part of the reason he's such a great guitar player and such a talented songwriter, but it's also part of the reason that he doesn't release stuff because he's too analytical and is always freaking out on whether it's good enough. He you knows know? what he wants. Yeah. And was he? do you feel that you were able to perform better under that kind of pressure or did it make you kind of crazy like, look, dude, I know what I'm doing? Yeah, no, he broke me, man. <laughs> oh, man. He, he broke me. It took me like uh, I mean it was I'm just coming back out now playing drums, man. Because I was in a, uh, I was I was seeing a psychologist about it. I'm joking, man. Nah, <laughs> now look, you I'm were kidding. selling that with a totally straight face. Yeah, I know. Luckily, yeah. this is radio. You can't see me going. Oh, nah. <laughs> man. That's yeah, great. I mean he was definitely he's really really hardcore. I mean he did the same thing to Bobby Rock. Right. Bobby will call me up and we'll talk about it, you know, and, and we both start crying a little bit and <laughs> kind of try to, you know, ease each other's pains with the drummer camaraderie. No, I'm kidding again, man. No, <laughs> but he's really yeah, he's a tough character to work with, no doubt. And he's an alien. Yeah, he's an alien. Uh, yeah. Now that I know you're not kidding about. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Now look, yeah. when you think about that, obviously everybody's thinking, what's what's your best funny or weird story with Vinnie Vincent? Uh, one time we were we were at Grandmaster Recording Studios in Hollywood. Rick Barcelona was the engineer, who also worked with uh, with Jimmy Page, Zeppelin. He was doing uh, techniques on my drum set, telling me that this is how they did Bonham's kit. You know, it was really cool, man. Putting wow. the aluminum foil in the bass drum, covering the inside of the shell. But uh, Vinny would, was grilling some chicken, and um, there was four pieces of chicken on the grill, and flames started shooting up from the grease dripping down, and I said, you wanted the best chicken and you got it. <laughs> and he started cracking up, you know, so he was laughing his ass off. And that's probably the funniest story I can re remember relating to that, because I was a huge Kiss fan, you know, right. so I was enjoying it, yeah. That's fantastic. You know, I mean, even think about that, okay, what's the first Kiss song you played on the drums? Um, you know, I, I wouldn't know, man. I mean, I'm trying to be r realistic about it, but um, we were all I got into Kiss. Then. <laughs> yeah, I got into Kiss, Kiss Alive when that came out, and then I, I the other albums that was uh, the originals. Right. Yeah. Um, I got into those after listening to Kiss Alive, but um, yeah, man. I mean, dude, ten years old, 1976, to start playing drums. Of course, I'm a right. Kiss fan. You know. No doubt. But then I got into more players that were like doing the more technical stuff, like Buddy Rich. Looking and at your Common to Peace, man. You He's here. A, Common to Peace is here. diversified group of, of people that you've worked with. What were some of the artists that stretched you the most as far as a drummer? Um, man, you know, I would probably say Robert Fleischman because I've recorded two records with him. With the sky. Yeah and, yeah, and it wasn't, you know, him stretching my abilities in the sense of technical speed or licks because, I mean, that's one thing. I'm kind of a, you know, I'm a technical player. I'm into the fusion stuff and all. But the way Robert was about getting the pocket and getting the feel the way he wanted it to be as far as playing slightly up behind or ahead and, and what's favorable in that, in that swagger, you know, the way you play the track, um, I would say that. But uh, I recorded with Andy Seussmill as well in Germany. I was out there for a while recording. And Bill Leverty of Firehouse, we recorded a bunch together. We did a record called Flood the Engine together with right. Jimmy Coons. Uh, yes, Cactus. <laughs> uh, and uh, he, um, Jimmy is cool. I spoke to him before I came to this. God, that meant that Travis King gave me. He's killing me. <laughs> Woo! <laughs> he said my breath stunk. But anyway. Um, well, it's radio. Uh, speaking of which, Travis, say hello really quick. Travis King, one of the most incredible drummer friends I have, shirtless. 
always bringing his friends into the interviews, always. Definitely. See, that's nice because, you know, that way you know, all the fans around the world now, they heard you on here too. It's, you know, value added here in the KISS room. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah but, uh, I mean, man, recording and, and, and all of that has so much to do with, um, with the feel of what you're doing. I mean, it's one thing to have a lot of licks and to have technical skill, and that's wonderful. I love that, man. But it's really more so about the um, the way you make the track sound. I mean, music is emotion, and it has so much to do with um, with swagger or, or a desired uh, character in the way you play when you're playing a song. It could be an easy, simple drum beat. You know, good metaphors like I speak the English language, but that doesn't mean that I can speak like Clint Eastwood. <laughs> right. And that's exactly. what we're trying to do here, you know. So, yeah. That's fantastic. Now, obviously, that's through stuff, the drums. The you stuff know? that you did with the sky is tremendous. Man, and obviously, thank you, to man. have that work with Robert Fleischman, yeah, who's man, a superior fortunate. talent. That those albums are fantastic. I'm so proud of that. So, and I had a whole yeah. long list of questions about that too. But you know, we're running out of time. So, really running out of time. Wait I only get you 15 minutes. Wait, I, wait a minute, man. I haven't even gotten into the crazy stories yet. And you're the timekeeper. See, that's, I, gotta, I, I, can't, I can't be the one that throws joking, you off. I'm joking, man. Yeah. The, so really, two last questions before I turn you loose. Tell me what you're working on right now. Uh, I started playing drums on Pots and Pans. And then uh, what's the current project? <laughs> um, I'm playing with Andy Seussmill, German guitarist. Um, also, Tim Williams with a band called Black Vinyl. And uh, we're recording out of Bill Leverty's recording studio, Firehouse Guitars. So th that's what's happening right now. Yeah. And then give everybody your social media. Where can they find you? Where can they get all the up-to-date uh, info? You, you know, man, I'm fortunate. I mean, my name is not, you know, legendary in the sense where you Google me and I pop up because I've got, you know, Steve Gadd repertoire. <laughs> but uh, I, I guess I have a unique name, Andre LaBelle. Yes. So you, if you just Google it, I pop right up, you know. Perfect. Yeah, man. I appreciate you taking the time. I'm going to let you go because I don't want to make whoever's waiting for you next gotcha. late. That's awesome. Because you're a drummer, you got to always be on time. Yeah, I'm with it, man. Andre, Thank thanks you, so much. Thank you, thanks man. Thanks for joining us in Thank the you, Kiss brother. Room. You listen to the Kiss Room on Marco Radio, where music and minds meet.
We are back. We're here at the Nashville Rocket Pod Expo, and I am joined now by Greg Runoff. And you all know the author of Van Halen Rising, how a Southern California backyard party band saved heavy metal. How many words can you fit into the title, Greg? I forgot Gene Simmons. <laughs> that was what? That was the final cut, Gene. My apologies. It was my, how a Southern California backyard party band assisted and discovered by Gene Simmons saved heavy metal, but I had to edit that part out. Didn't I wasn't going to fit on the cover of the book. Now look, first of all, it's great to see you again. Obviously, oh, we're having the greatest time here in Nashville Rock and Pod. So, I think at this point, I mean, obviously, we've talked about the book on my show even before, and I know you've talked about it in the past, but thinking about writing a book like that and covering Van Halen from like the first days on, high school days, right. What kind of things did you learn? Was there anything that surprised you? And I'll tell you what surprised me after you tell me what surprised you. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think the one thing that definitely surprised me was you kind of had this image of David Lee Roth, like from like day one, he was like David Lee Roth. And you sort of realized that just like Van Halen had to build up their following and build up their brand, basically as their band, like Dave sort of built himself into be this like ultimate front man, which is, you know, very admirable. I mean, I have it in writing the book, I had such, um, admiration grow for Roth about how hard he worked and just basically you know it isn't you know you just you didn't come out of the womb as like Diamond Dave right it's like he sort of like had to create that for himself through his own um, efforts and through working with the band and you know those guys gigging so much so that for me was really interesting to sort of see like where it, in the beginning where there were a lot of doubters about Dave's abilities as a front man to being like this rock god who completely dominates the entire scene it's amazing right I think that's what I was gonna say my favorite part really those early chapters where you talk about he's strutting around the high school with a vest and no shirt, and he gets along with everybody. Every group of kids knows the cool white dude. And it's Diamond David Lee Roth. They yeah. start calling him Diamond David Lee Roth. Yeah. yeah, that was really a fun part of the book to write. I got to talk to a couple of guys who were uh, buddies with Dave in high school. And, you know, they, they had nothing but great memories and fun things to say about it. But it's uh, the story that, the, yeah, one of my favorite stories in the book was this guy I interviewed who was just, who went to John Muir High School, and which is still there. You can go see it in Pasadena. Um, and he was there, and he was like a sophomore or a freshman, and Roth was a senior. And, like, he said, like, we were like the geeky table, you know, and, like, in the lunchroom, like, Roth comes by, and he's wearing, literally wearing, a vest with no shirt he's wearing like these hip hugger pants and he's got these girls and he's like headed out to like the quad to smoke cigarettes or something and he's like that's what I want to be I want to be a senior so I can be like Roth you know like he was like you know can you can imagine like that would be like you know incredible to see this guy you know um, basically you know faking it till he makes it basically like you're already like he's already I'm not Diamond Dave yet but I'm on my way you know I'm on my way I found that to be the most fascinating part of the book because you were able to connect with those people that watched him become yeah. what we knew when that first album came out yeah. you know and, and, and everybody's looking going I wish I was the cool dude so that kind of stuff was fantastic. Now, obviously, and this is something that I've talked to you about, but I think your book would be an absolutely fantastic movie. It's, it's the template. It's the Rocky story. Roth is Rocky in your book. Everybody's telling him he's not good enough. He, what are you doing? You can't be a front man. And he's the greatest front man. He becomes the archetype of blonde-haired, 80s metal front man. That story is the movie. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, so the book, Van Halen Rising, has been optioned for a movie. Um, what I would say about that as a disclaimer to everybody, understand that that happens quite a bit with books. People um, in Hollywood find a book and they're like, oh, we should try to make a movie out of this. Doesn't mean that's gonna happen, but yes, there are, um, there are processes in place where 
in theory, a Van Halen Rising movie could be made one day. So that would be amazing. I've, I think I said to you uh, yesterday when we talked, it's like, that enough? Like, just the idea that someone would even be like, take my book and be like, we should make a movie out of this. That's like almost like reward enough. And uh, it's a, you know, it's a thing that could happen. Um, I think it would make a, you know, I'm biased, but I think it would make a great movie. Um, you know, we talk about The Dirt and um, the Queen movie, and there's been a number of Rocket Man, the Elton John movie that have come out. They've been really successful. And I think it's like actually would be a kind of a dazed and confused meets the dirt type of story that would be super, um, you know, fun for people to, and just appreciate how hard those guys, you know, worked and just how fun it was for those. I mean, it's, it does the story. The thing about the Van Halen Rising book for me too, it was like, it was a fun, positive thing to see that process play out from going from playing for, you know, 25 people at a high school dance to playing to, to 50,000 people in the stadium. I mean, what's not great about that? That's like the dream everyone wants. And the way, you, even the way you frame it out as a backyard party band. That's and what they were. You, and then you think the Us Festival, that's as far from a backyard party. I definitely, I, <laughs> I definitely, I think we've talked about that before too. That's a, I love that you said that because it's, that's the thing. It's like the Us Festival was like the biggest backyard party in history. 350,000 people. And, I, and honestly, they played in San Bernardino. That's the truth is like they played at dive bars in San Bernardino in 1975. And then they come back eight years later and they're playing in front of like, you know, the biggest crowd in history of California, basically. And Dave's going to turn the stage around. So you're all backstage. <laughs> Now look, obviously at this point, sobering-wise to the story is Ed's passing. Sure. How does that, how do you feel that that colors their story now? You know, I think for me, it's, it's made writing about Van Halen going forward a little bit more challenging. Um, I'm not going to say I'll never write another Van Halen book. And if, if you know, if I, I, to be honest, if Eddie was, was healthy and like, around and doing great I might be like in the midst of like finishing a Van Halen book right now but you know with him passing away I, I couldn't I just speak for myself I couldn't go forward on a Van Halen book that might seem to some people that I was trying to capitalize on something that was a, a loss of someone we all worshipped and admired and thought was just you know an icon so I'm not passing judgment on anyone else's actions but I'm just saying for me I had to sort of shelve um, you know ideas about doing another Van Halen book I'm sure I will do another one but um you know, it's it's a different thing. Like, you know, when you realize you lose someone like that and then you think about that's, you know, there are more stories that need to be told, but the time has to be right where people understand it's coming from the right. It's not coming from a, a capitalistic standpoint where you're like, oh, here's an easy way, to be honest with you, to basically to be have a higher profile for a book because someone, like, has just passed away. Again, that's my personal opinion. Other people might do differently, and that's okay. Um, I'm not trying to pass judgment on anyone else's choices, but that's where it is for me. I mean, obviously, somebody like Edward Van Halen, his legacy is so cemented as the one of the greatest guitar players of all time. But that's, and I think that's the fun thing, especially in your book, it's the brothers coming with, you know, nothing but their music and their family and becoming right. the legends. Right, and that's what I think, like, even like, the, the, you know, it's, it's different, but in some ways it's very similar to the Kiss story with those guys who basically, you know, like Gene coming over from Israel and, and coming to America and, and out of New York. It's, 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 it is such an American story, and that's, you know, kind of getting back to the idea of doing the movie, if that ever happened. I mean, to me, I would hope whoever would consider it in terms of making it, would realize that that's the other piece of the story, too. It's not just about, like, a rock band. It's such this American story about this, you know, this misfit Jewish kid from Pasadena who meets up with these brothers from Holland who have, um, you know, who have only been in the States for about eight or nine years, and they make this band together, which on paper you're like, wait a minute, like, these two, like, 
uh, you know, immigrant uh, Dutch brothers who are musicians are going to make, you know, make a, a band with this guy who's like walking around like, you know, thinking he's like, uh, um, you know, David Bowie Jr. or something like that. And, you know, and like within platform shoots, it seems insane. Right. And then it happens. But the but that's the thing. It's like this great this great um, American success story of just sort of sticking to it and kind of. You know, you can, you know, basically in America, you can be anything you want. And that's the Gene Simmons story and um, a lot of the guys in Kiss. And same thing with Van Halen. And even that, near the end of the book, you kind of summarize that idea that the Van Halen's Ed's playing influenced the next 10 years of guitar. Okay. And you list them off, people like Dokken and, you know, Rat and all these bands that are clearly going, look what these guys are right. doing. Yeah, I mean, and even the, the other thing was really interesting to me is like when you listen to songs like which may not be um, on the playlist of a lot of our, our friends or your listeners. It's like you listen to like Maniac by Michael Sambello, like from the Footloose soundtrack, that's an Eddie Van Halen guitar solo, like the, the two-hand tapping, and you're like, this guy like broke the mold and made everybody think like, this is what hard rock, heavy metal guitar should be. It's Eddie Van Halen. Like they're like, you know, Les Paul, Hendrix, Eddie. There have been other guys like Tom Morello. There's a bunch of guys we point to who have been like really like, really shifted the, the way people play guitar. But for Eddie, it's like, yeah, I mean, in the 80s, I mean, all the metal guys were imitating him too, but all the pop guys were like, oh yeah, let's put like, the, you know, let's put an Eddie Van Halen solo in the middle of like, uh, Loverboy by Billy Ocean. Listen to the solo from Loverboy in Billy Ocean. It's an, it's like, I'm like, <laughs> I think I post on Twitter, I'm like, this is a damn good Van Halen solo. It's like, it's like really good. It's like, Eddie should have thought of that little lick. That's a kind of a cool thing, you know? <laughs> now, I'm going to put you on the spot. Favorite Van Halen song. Woo! I mean, it's tough, I know. I'm gonna go uh, with uh, today with Unchained because I got to do the book with Ted Templeman, and that was a working on his autobiography as Van Halen's producer, and that was like an absolute dream come true for me to collaborate with him on the book. And um, he got to tell me the story. I'll tell you real quick about how um, he was in the studio at Sunset Sound working on Fair Warning with Van Halen, and, and so Ted was a, a, a vice president at Warner Brothers, and he had these meetings where he would go to where it would be like he had to wear a suit, like it was like not like I'm the rock star producer I'm like the executive vice president you have to meet with corporate people and he wore a suit to the studio and like Roth started basically going whoa oh, like all this stuff like that suit is you and that's what Ted said that's what kind of sparked that and they were like oh this is actually really funny the way Dave was like mocking Ted's suit and he's like and that's when they decided to record it you know so it's not spontaneous on the record they had they had sort of thought it out but it was a spontaneous comment that Roth made like he's gonna he's like, get some legs in that do it right sure. right right so right there's like you know that was it that the way Ted told it that like he was like you know uh you know all this stuff and then they did the come on Dave you may break and so um that's a fun thing for me to realize that, yeah, you have like Van Halen's producer on the song that's like obviously in top five of pretty much everyone Van, Van Halen fan. Now, look, I could talk to you all day. We're running out of time, and I don't want to short whoever's right after us, but obviously the COVID, it shuts things down. It changes your life. Did you have time to write? Did you focus? I mean, everything in life got thrown into yeah. a 52 pickup. Where are you at? New book. Yeah, I've, I've got some. I've got um, a couple of book ideas I'm sort of playing with. I think, um, you know, like a lot of people, COVID for me, um, a lot more family at home time, and just the way it worked, there was a sort of a, a natural rhythm to my domestic life that got uh, re reorganized. And I'd say that, you know, it's uh, it's all good, and uh, you know, I'm I'm looking forward to doing another book. I I did do some um, some writing, some smaller projects, but to sort of take on a book at that time, it was just not really feasible to try to manage all the moving parts of that. So a couple of articles, and I, I actually wrote for a, a podcast. I did a script for a podcast, which was a really cool experience. And um, after Eddie passed, I actually got to write for the Los Angeles Times, which was incredible. 
um, as a writer to do that. So um, yeah, I, I did some I did some writing, but yeah, there's been a lot of <laughs> a lot of changes. Greg Renoff, author of Van Halen Rising, how a Southern California backyard party band that Gene Simmons discovered saved heavy metal. Absolutely, and I think the first and the last <laughs> word has to be about Gene. We salute Gene, Ted Templeman. Uh, in all seriousness, I, I, I have enormous respect for Gene. It's all meant in, in, in good fun, but also to say that um, Ted has told me many times, he's like, Gene saw it, like Gene saw the talent. Ted Templeman has enormous respect for Gene Simmons. He says, you know, he said, I don't know what happened that Gene wasn't able to get the deal for those guys, but he's like, he saw the talent way before um, I ever had seen Van Halen months before. And he's like, you know, he's got big respect for Gene. So all, all respect to Gene. And Greg, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. You're in the Kiss Room on Marco Radio, where music and minds meet. Woo!
we are back at the Nashville Rocket Pod 2021. I'm with Ryan Cook. Hello. I'm with Jeremy Asbrock. Hello. Those of you that listen to the Kiss Room, you definitely know them as either the Talisman, the Rock and Roll Residency, the Gene Simmons Band, the Ace Fraley Band, and you definitely know them. And we're here live in Nashville. Guys, welcome back to the Kiss Room. Thanks. Thank you. It's going to be here in 21 now. Thrilled to see you. Absolutely thrilled. Now, look, that's one of the first things I want to talk about. As everything was shut down, one of the highlights of the year, Ace Fraley Origins Volume 2 comes out. You get to go to the store with your mask on, and you had to take a selfie of yourself with the album. Hashtag Space Ace, Walmart, or Target, or where yeah, the hell it was. I even did it. And did it was it. great. It we was fun it. seeing that. Whoever came up with that, that idea, shout out to him, was brilliant. So I know that you guys were KISS fans. Freaks. And now you're on Ace's album. Go through the process. Obviously, now think about it. In a time when everything's locked down, shut down, masks up, but you made it happen. Talk about that. Uh, let's start with the record. Let's start with the record with uh, uh, recording on that because you talked about it. That happened at the 11th hour and it added as a bonus track. The record was done and we've been playing She live with Ace so much that he sent, I think it was me, he sent one of us a message saying, hey, what would you think about recording this as a bonus track? Uh, so it was before COVID. It was pre-pandemic. Pre and we were off anyway. We were so, Our last show was December 14th, 2019 with Ace. Then we were supposed to be off from that date till the end of March, March 31st. So the pandemic hadn't happened yet. So we didn't know we were getting ready to be home for a year. <laughs> but we recorded it in Nashville. Yeah, it was in January of uh, yeah 2020. And he sent us guitar parts and our friend Paul Simmons added drums and then the three of us went into Marty Fredrickson's studio and cut guitars and vocals and it was all given back to Marty and, and what was the trip was it was it was sent to us uh, it was a click track and Ace's guitar wow that was it oh my god here's another uh, funny uh, tidbit so uh, you know Ace does the solo in the intro of she right Ace has never played the rhythm part under that. So he didn't play the right thing. <laughs> and we heard it, we're Woo! like, that's not right, man. <laughs> so should we copy that or should we just ignore that and play it the way? So we wound up playing it the way it goes. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Hey, Ace, you're not playing your yeah. song right. Yeah, we just didn't even tell him that we were ashamed. We thought, it's easier just to do it than try to explain what we're doing. So we sent it back the way we did it, the right way, and he probably was like, oh, yeah. new. I sound great. <laughs> <laughs> now, really, that had to be such a thrill. You're going out and you're picking up this album, but to be on Ace's album. Absolutely. I mean, and I always say, I mean, it's something we've talked about before, but that you're living the dream of all KISS fans. I'm not even kidding you, and I think I've told you before, but those shows with Gene, and the one that I saw in Lancaster where, okay, now everybody come up on stage. Oh, my God. And I'm standing literally next to Gene. Now, you guys get to know him as a real person. You're working with him as a peer. To me, as a KISS fan, that ranks as one of the greatest moments of history for me. Here's something I remember specifically about that show. Ryan got an email from Gene that morning that said, hey, can you guys think we could do All the Way tonight? And we did All the Way that night. Which was awesome. And the fact that you guys were pulling out deep cuts, and I would always notice somebody off to the side of the stage laying those lyric sheets out. That's and me. And he'd kind of look, right? And you'd, and you'd notice him looking at it and then trying to figure out if you remember what they were. And uh, ladies and gentlemen, I was cleaning my house two days ago and I found those lyric sheets. And if you would like to make me an <laughs> offer for those, 
hit me up. <laughs> That's awesome. You talk about everybody coming on stage. Man, part of the battle was not letting them steal those lyric sheets that didn't have to be rewritten every night. Because we, Jeremy, would drag them from show to show, city to city. And here's the way I had to do it. They had to be really big. So I would take uh, two, three, four, five, six, six or eight sheets of paper and tape them all together and then make these massive lyric sheets and then have to lay them out and then take care of them and, like, travel city to city and not lose them and, most importantly, not get stolen. Cause See, now that's a good point. This is something that you guys are professional musicians. You have to travel. As I'm packing for Rock and Pod... I check my bag 8,000 times. What if that headphone splitter gets lost? What if I forget this? Do you do you still have that same kind of problem that I do, or do you get used to it? Both. Yeah, <laughs> both. Both. Uh, honestly, because everything we do with Gene and mostly Ace are fly dates, which means you get up at 5 in the morning. you got to be at the airport two hours early. Then you got to stand in line. Then you got to check in. Then you got to do everything and all that. I would always rather travel by bus. Right. To where you're just always on the bus. You have one bag that you take to and from, hotel room. Oh, we're getting... Flash bike. We're getting uh, flashed. It's great. If only you could see. I'll tell everybody that you're, you're tens and you're beautiful women. Oh, these guys. No, see, that's that's the funny thing is driving. Like, last year we came down, we drove. You feel like you have control. The airport, I don't care who you are. At some point, you're a number to them. Yeah. Like, we're standing there. This dude's like, uh, I have to catch my plane in 10 minutes. Can I get ahead of you? It's like, nobody gives a crap. Yep. You're just, and the guy in front of him finally said, we let him ahead because we were like, we were two hours early, like you said. And the guy in front of him goes, dude, we're all going to the same place. <laughs> <laughs> he was out of luck. I'm pretty sure he didn't make it to Florida. Oh, but man. the uh, so preferred on the bus. Yeah, because you know you feel like you have a little more control of what's going on as to where when you're traveling by you know there's just security issues and you're when just, your belt's coming off and then the shoes are coming off and you know come it makes me woozy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, we, we actually paid for TSA so we can keep our shoes and belts on. <laughs> yeah, that is one tip. Yeah, Get yeah. TSA pre-check. Yeah, <laughs> Global entry. Get it all. So now obviously look, we're we're coming back. It feels like live music's gonna return. Obviously, God bless, I'm crossing myself as we say it. What's the plans as we move forward? What do you guys have on tap for the upcoming months? Well, uh, we are touring with Alice Cooper. Ace Fraley and Alice Cooper are touring for 25 shows. Fantastic. Mostly uh, East Coast and uh, Midwest, Southeast right now, and you know, hopefully some West Coast stuff next year. That's dynamite. It's going to be a whole um, new experience for all of us, everybody and every band in the world right now uh, because of the pandemic. We are now, we were informed a couple days ago, we will have a CDC COVID officer touring with wow. our entourage. Uh, it's going to be very, the whole thing of having your friends and family backstage and all that kind of thing is a thing of the past, at least for right now. You can't do it. Uh, we're going to be getting tested twice a week, uh, everybody. Mm. And if you haven't been vaccinated, you cannot be on this tour. You cannot be part of the personnel, band or band or crew, and they also have the, the uh, capability of being able to do a rapid test on certain days if something happens. You know, so it's going to be a whole 
whole different thing. And it's co co constantly evolving, too. Like. Think about that in the 70s, if you were touring, things might have been going up in your nose. Now it's just to check if you that, have COVID. That's right. It's terrible. <laughs> it's the way things have gone around. Now, look, the one thing I'll say to both of you, during the, the lockdown, shutdown, COVID, both of you really had very positive Facebook posts which as just a jabroni watching, I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you. And how did you manage to, like, your livelihood as musicians really kind of got sucked up. Like, I was able to sit and work from home, you know, and not really have to worry about it. How'd you keep so positive? I mean, you know, you stay busy and doing things. Uh, well, it's kind of our job to put good out into the world. I mean, you know, we had our, our moments of doubt and pain just like everybody else. You know, I was underwater with family. I had a baby during the pandemic. Congratulations. Thank you very much. So that definitely kept me busy. But I don't know, like, we're just not those people, man. Like, we, th that's actually one of our big lessons from KISS. You know, like, every day is a good day. You know, treat every day like it's your last. And every day above and ground is a good, good day. day. That's Gene. And, you know, that stuff rubbed off on us at an early age. And, you know, we, it's, it's our duty. Absolutely. I think it's, uh, it's contagious. Whatever you put out there is contagious. I think that. And I always try to be glass half full. I'm 100% sure that nobody is interested about what makes me unhappy. <laughs> right. And right. it doesn't do anybody any good for me because then if someone, if you see someone happy, it's contagious. And it's like, it's just something to, why be miserable? I'd rather be quiet. Right. Than be miserable publicly. That's um, fantastic. You know, and like you said, that's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to entertain people and play music. And you don't always say to Jerry, you don't work music, you play music. You know, and uh, like he said, it's just kind of a responsibility that I think that we have is to make people feel good, have a good time. Now, we're wrapping up because I know you have to go to another interview. we got these short blocks, but put you on the spot. Favorite songs to play with Ace, favorite songs to play with G. Today, it changes every day. Uh, for me, with Gene, today is going to be Almost Human. Uh, with Ace, man, I like doing the older Kiss stuff. I like doing Watching You. I like doing She. Um, how can you not like doing Shock Me? Right. Uh, with Gene, Charisma. Oh, yeah. Nice. That's a great one. And with Ace, I, I do like to do Shock Me because we all do the sidestep thing together. Right, right. And it's funny. Yeah, that's right. uh, musically with him, you know, like watching you and she, you know, you know even I, hard times, as, man. I'm always as so a Kiss fan, when you pulled out "It's My Life," oh, yeah. that, that, that was, was Gene. Gene, oh, Gene wanted to do that one. That was such a treat. Something you think you'd never hear. I had told him that that's probably had been the most requested song from fans. Definitely came from me, so it was definitely that was my request as well. So I can't thank you enough for taking thank the time you. to talk to me. I knew that I would. I signed up for this interview just because I want to make sure I got 15 minutes of FaceTime with you. It. So I'm thrilled to see you. Too, so man. glad to be back here. Guys, thanks a million. Thank Enjoy you. the rest thanks, of Rock Matt. and Pod. I'll talk to you soon. Maybe even see you on tour. I hope so. Matt uh, for president. <laughs> thanks, guys.
are back in the Kiss Room. We're here at Nashville Rock and Pod 2021. We are recording, and I am honored to be joined by Mark Goodman, that you all know as the first person you ever saw on MTV. Welcome yeah. to music television, and welcome to the Kiss Room. Great to be here. Thrilled to see you. Now, how have you found the Rock and Pod so far? This is my first podcast convention of any sort. Rock and Pod is rocking. I mean, it's aptly titled. I met some really cool people here. I just uh, two seconds ago, I just talked to Billy Sheehan, who I hadn't seen face to face since I was out with him when he was playing with David Lee Roth. <laughs> Dave took me on the road. It's great, man. It's like I'm seeing old friends. I saw Ricky Rackman, Pinfield. I mean, there's generations of MTV here. They're my children, those kids. <laughs> now, that's that's one thing I was going to say that's exciting. MTV just celebrated the 40th anniversary. And, of course, everybody knows the first face you see on MTV is you. How long did it take you to realize what kind of cultural shock was going to happen from MTV? You know, there, the, the cultural phenomenon that, that it became... It really took a couple of few years, but we never, we never guessed that that was going to happen. I quit a great job in radio, you know? I, and people thought I was an idiot to go to this video music channel. What the hell is that? But we did start, you know, we started to see people dressing like Madonna or Cyndi Lauper. And we started to realize that bands that only we were playing we're selling records. Right. And that, it, it took a couple of years because what the hell, nobody was watching. When we launched, we had like 600,000 people or something like that, 800. They lied and told us they had 2 million. No. Now see, I think that's another part of the story that's so amazing, was MTV, everybody wanted it. It made pay cable a thing. Yeah. I want my MTV, man. Mom, Dad, I need cable so I can watch. And, yeah. and I think to me, the fact that you could be part of that, it's amazing because it, it will never, like now everything's pay-per-view. You want this channel plus and that, and that. But at the time that was really meant something. I wanted that. Now when you think about it, obviously in those days, you guys were setting the styles. Were you dressing yourself or was, or was somebody telling you, Mark, here's what you gotta wear? The very first, you know, in that first six months a year, we were dressing ourselves, and they started us off to buy clothing for that first six months after launch. They gave us each $500. <laughs> so, and it was funny the way that we all spent that money. I went to this amazing clothing store on my corner where I lived in Manhattan, and I bought this incredible shirt that I loved, uh, and pants. Alan Hunter bought like 10 shirts, suspenders, pants, underwear, you know, it was like that. But we had no stylist, we were figuring it out. You know, most of the time, they didn't really give us somebody who actually tried. And we, you know, people, we didn't listen to anybody. Right. You know, Nina dressed the way Nina wanted. That was the way it went. And you were setting the styles. I think that's what's amazing. That's fantastic. Now think about those early days. It seemed like anything goes. Some of the videos that would show up were like, they almost looked like they were homemade. 
because there wasn't a lot of, like I remember watching pretty early on thinking, like I could make that. And that's because we had a TV studio where I went to high school. Right. When you think right. about that, what were the kind of things that were, were shocking to you at the time? Like what do you remember about those earliest videos? They, the ones that I, that I loved the most, the ones that made an impression on me, like Peter Gabriel, for example, always did great stuff. And the reason that I liked the kind of thing that he did was because he thought about repeated viewing. I mean, you can listen to a song over and over and over, and you can find something new, but not with a video. It's really hard to make that happen or to make it, make it worth something somebody wants to watch it again. Duran Duran... Also, great in video, but for a different reason, you know. They would like, save a prayer, they, would, they were in Sri Lanka, you know, in Rio, they're on this boat with the babes. And it was really like, it was such a blast to watch. Um, those were the kinds of videos, the people who seized on that idea of understanding, this is not something that people are gonna watch one time and then, you know, be done with, it repeats. And I think there were some great people who did that. You know, that days. Duran Duran, Hungry Like the Wolf, is one that I think of as like a definitive, because as a kid, oh you're watching, God. it looked like they were having the best time ever. And that gal's chasing them around. I was walking through the grocery store the other day, and Hungry Like the Wolf is playing. And you get to that part at the end where it sounds like that gal's having a lot of fun. Is everybody else hearing this in the meat aisle? You know, it's, like, <laughs> yeah, you know, it's great. But, the, uh, you know, it's, it was, it's really funny how it's just <laughs> transcended everything. Now, obviously, one of my favorite moments with you, Us Festival, you're backstage with David Lee Roth, and he wouldn't miss it for a million. And it's like, describe what that was like. You clearly have seen the YouTube. Yeah. All righty. <laughs> um, it was, Dave was in rare form that evening. Dave was quintessential Dave. He, um, I don't know what he ingested that night, but he, there was a lot of it. And man... But it was, I, I never had more fun than I did talking to that guy. Because it's, uh, you never know where he's going to go, and you got to just try and keep up. He was, you know, basically referring to the fact at some point during that interview where both referring to the fact that we were both circumcised, you know, <laughs> managed to work that in. So it's incredible. And that was like this, the Van Halen compound, right. you know. It was like a big thing to be in there. It was cool. When you think about some of those, if you had to do if you could find your defining moment with MTV, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? And that's defining, a tough one. It is a tough one. I mean, I probably, I, I guess we'd have to say Live Aid. I, I mean... Absolutely. You know, and I have other things that for me personally were defining moments, but Live Aid was, you know, not sort of a career highlight, but a life highlight, right? So it's on a different level. Now, during the pandemic, one of the things that I saw you, you hosted the Paul Stanley Town Hall on Sirius. Yeah. And everybody that's watching it in the middle of this great interview, his Zoom drops. Everybody that spent the last year and a half on Zoom meetings, it's an icon and a rock god, and the Zoom goes out. It's like... Yeah, so? I work in the <laughs> IT, and I went the next day to the meeting in the morning, I said... I want you all to think about this. The next time you're in a Zoom meeting and it drops, it happened to Mark Goodman and Paul Stanley. <laughs> and they all laugh. <laughs> Man, it, it, it happens to Anderson Cooper, you know? <laughs> I mean, 
we're all it's all we're all on Zoom. What the hell? What are we gonna fucking do? You know? I mean, so that, that's why it was a pain in the ass. But it's not like something we've never seen before. Right. Right. Okay, hang no, on. It'll great. be all right in a minute. Just you know. Yeah. Well, look. I know we're running out of time. I super appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. What are you working on right this minute? Right this minute, I'm actually getting ready for this massive concert that's going to happen in New York City in a couple of weeks. Our We're Back concert with Bruce Springsteen and, and uh, Elton John and Paul Simon and I mean all these. I don't know if Elton's going to be there, but uh, Sirius XM is going to broadcast the whole thing live. And me and my volume co-host, Alan Light, will be doing play-by-play from backstage. Fantastic. Mark Goodman, MTV icon, broadcasting icon. I'm thrilled that you take the time to talk to me. Thank you, man. Thanks so much. Have a good time, man. And you're in the Kiss Room on Marco Radio, where music and minds meet. Not allowed to smoke in the Kiss Room. Hi, everybody. It's Gene Simmons. You're listening to the Kiss Room on Montco Radio, but you knew that. You wanted the best, and you got it. The hottest man in the land, Matt Porter. This one's from the only album you can't find on streaming services. Here's Modern Day Delilah.
does this song have a cool guitar riff but it's also got cowbell guess what i got a fever and the only prescription is more cowbell Come back to your mother and 
Here's three words every woman says to their man. No, not I love you. Talk to me. Kiss fan or fans of late 60s rock and roll know what this one's about. 
Here's four words that every man likes to say to their woman. Come on and love me! She's a dancer, a romancer. I'm a Capricorn, she's a cancer. She's on my picture in a music magazine. She met me, said she can't be I touched her head and told me that she let me I took her hand, baby, this is what I said I said, my oh, baby, baby, don't you hesitate Cause I'm just can't wait A lady wants to take me down on my knees You can do what you please Come on I'm the baby, 
Back in the Kiss Room on Monaco Radio, where music minds meet. We are at the National Rock and Pod Expo 2021. And I'm back here with a familiar voice with the Kiss Room, Josiah Horn. Welcome to the Kiss Room live and in person in front of my eyes. That's, that's right, Matt. I'm here. I'm like a foot away from you. It's great to meet you, Candy, your brother. Everybody is here. It's great. Now, the, here's the thing about the Rock and Pod that I love. I've been talking to you for years online, mm -hmm. even on the Kiss Room, mm -hmm. and now here you are right in front of me. Right here. How have you liked Fresh Rock and Pod so far? This has been absolutely amazing. Um, I have discovered at least one new artist that I'm hoping to track down and tell her how great she is. Um, Jax Hollow was in a panel just a minute ago, and she has some really great stories. Um, I got my picture with Greg Bissonette, which was great for me because I'm a huge Beatles fan. I showed off my Beatles tattoo to him. He plays drums with Ringo, so I told him he's got to do Octopus's Garden on the next tour. <laughs> um, and of course, meeting all these cool people from Electric Crush, from the Kiss Room, from Bobby Dreyer's Metal Summit. Um, this has just been a great time so far. You know, the great thing about it really is the fact that it is your Facebook life come to life. Absolutely. It's everybody that you've talked to online for sometimes years or decades. Everybody's here. We're having the best time ever. Now, did you pick up some merch? I see you got a bag full of records. What did you buy? I bought three records here. I don't have enough hands to pull them out, but I'll tell you what I <laughs> well, got. Well, it's radio. You just tell us and describe, and our listeners are going to know. I, well, yeah, they can't see me anyway. I got, I found a Smashes, Thrashes, and Hits on vinyl nice. for only 25 bucks. So can't beat that. Um, I got a Stars album. Which one is this? It's the one with Cherry Baby Violation. on it. Violation. Love it. And then I... Got lucky and I found Dancing on the Edge by Lita Ford. I love it. And, you know, I've never seen a Lita Ford album out in the wild before. So, <laughs> um, I, so yeah, there's some great vinyl here, some great merch. I almost had sensory overload at a Kiss booth. Um, there was a lot of things lot at of that stuff. one table that all seemed ex 
pretty expensive, so it was good, but mm -hmm. I got a love gun with all the inserts. So that Look was pretty incredible. I was pretty That's... happy about that. Shout out Electric Crush. I see them doing an interview with Ron Keel right now. This yep. place is packed. There's podcasters everywhere. I'm going to put you on the spot. What has been your favorite part so far? So far, definitely so far, just meeting my Facebook life, coming to life. I've been friends with you about two years. I've been friends with Bill Elam for about two years. And like last night, I was thinking around 9 o'clock, maybe I should go to bed because I've got a long day tomorrow. I'm like, no, I'm not going to get this chance again for a long time. And we stayed in the bar we, for a while. We stayed. <laughs> it was 11, 12 before we started to call the quits. Um, and I get the feeling tonight's going to be another night because we got that showing of. we're going to see Kiss Meets the Phantom on the big screen mm -hmm. with the comedians doing commentary. I am really Looking forward to that. I am absolutely looking forward to getting to lay eyes on the one and only Phil Schaus. Let me tell He's you around. what. He's around. He's around. So I probably have seen him and just haven't recognized him, but you know, getting to see him is going to be great. Well, Josiah, thanks for joining me here in the Kiss Room. We're at the Rock and Pod Nashville Rock and Pod Expo 2021, and you're in the Kiss Room on Marco Radio, where music, music and minds meet. <laughs> <laughs> All right, love you, man. <laughs>
Kiss Army, we are back, and we're here at the National Rock and Pod Expo 2021. I am here with Rick Fox. It's deja vu all over again, and now I have batteries that work. And guess what? We're, we're going to take you back as listeners to the early 70s with Kiss, back into the loft with Rick Fox. Rick, welcome to the Kiss Room. Thanks for having me again. <laughs> now, look, you were dating Peter Chris's sister at the time, good friends with the family. Right, right. So as you just told me that, and then our, our recorder went dead. So I feel like I know something. So the first time I go up to, to the Rocksteady office, and I was on my way out of the office, and Bill Coyne's walking me to the door, and I get this little friendly little grope on my left cheek. <laughs> so when I went back to, to the neighborhood, and I went up to Peter's mom, up to the, their apartment, and I said, Bill Coyne just grabbed my butt. And she goes, watch out for Gee, he likes the boys. <laughs> So that was my introduction to that, that world. So now at that point, you were going to see them rehearse. Ace isn't even in the band yet. Not, not yet, not yet. So describe what the vibe. I mean, obviously to every Kiss fan, you had a vantage point that everybody would hit the time machine and go to, what was it like? It wasn't even Kiss yet. The name wasn't there. It was just Peter and Paul and Gene rehearsing. Uh, I was amazed at the fact that there was a stencil on Gene's SVT cabinet that said Jack Bruce. What? So he had one of Jack Bruce's SVT cabinets. That's crazy. Yeah. Now, now you think about that. I mean, obviously, when you when you go back in time to that point, they're discovering what they're going to be. Yeah. What was it like to witness that? We had never heard or seen anything like that before, so it was completely new for us. I was trying to describe what they to my my friends in high school what this band is going to be like, because there was no other band around like them. There was little bits of this or that in them, but there was no way to define clearly who they were yet at that point. And then, and then uh, you know, I, tried to, I wrote about them in my high school paper. I tried to get them a gig at my high school, which fell through. I mean, they, the school backed out. They didn't want to... It was un, they didn't know who they were. It was unproven, untested. It, they were afraid. The school was intimidated, and of course, Gene was upset. I was upset. You know, it was going to be one of their first paid gigs, 300 bucks, I think, and, and it just fell through, and, and I felt bad about that, you know? That's amazing just as part of a piece of history, though, is that you're literally trying to get them some of their Promotion. first gigs, right? Promotion. And yeah. get them known at a time when they were absolutely unknown. I've always been a promotion guy. <laughs> I'm like Billy Blazjowski in Night Shift. <laughs> Chuck, Chuck, I'm an idea guy. Cold Starkist, you know. You know, so take us in. I mean, go into the loft. Paint the picture for us. We're in the loft with, with like you said, they're not even really kiss yet. No, it was about uh, 30, 20, 30 feet deep by about 12 feet across, 15 feet across. Egg cartons on the walls to absorb the sound, you know. Uh, it was an, a lot of buildings had industrial lofts for, for various, you know, uh, thing, industry things in Manhattan. And this is what bands would do. They would rent out a, 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 an abandoned, you know, an empty loft in a, in a building, and and rehearse in there. And there was their gear and you know, playing like that. And um, you know, Peter would invite us to come watch watch him rehearse once he got the gig with the band. <clears throat> and we we'd sit there and we they they'd want us to to show some type of physical response to their music. It was so new to us, we didn't know how to respond right to their music. You know, it was just. We sat there with our jaws open. <laughs> what are some of the songs you remember at that time? I mean, they're building the core of what we know. Well, they had Deuce. Okay. They had Strutter. 
lo love her all I can. Uh, she, um, there was a, the, there was a, something they released later. It was called a love theme from Kiss. Right, Acrobat. sure. Acrobat. Acrobat. They played Acrobat. And it, uh, halfway through the song, went, after the pretty part stopped, it got into this real heavy down to down to down to like Detroit Rock City. And then you're much too young. Right. right. That's great. You know, and she was a carryover from Wicked Lester. Because I, I have the right. Wicked Lester version, and it was like a hippie song. <laughs> right. You know, it was like Grateful Dead. <laughs> and now it's da da. They were great at writing hooks like that. You know, and when. And it's, it back, this is in a day when the bass player and the guitar players played the same lines. You know, in the 80s, the bass player would just write a note, and the guitar patterns would play over that. But now, back then, you know, like you had Mountain. Right. And, and Felix and, and Leslie West would play the same lines. That was the way they did it back. It was heavy. So Gene and Paul, and, and they were playing the same lines together. We'd never seen anything like that before. So that was really heavy for us. So, and what did you think as they started to really, I mean, you're talking from the roots, the ground, like the, the, you're watching the seeds come up out of the ground. Yeah. What do you think as they start taking off? What was that like? Everybody in high school said, we should have listened to you. You were right. <laughs> exactly. You were right. I took a lot of heat from that. Nobody believed me. So in high school, you're an artist, you're a writer, you're writing for the paper, things like that. When do you start picking up music? And obviously, everybody listening knows in the future you get into Wasp and Steeler and things like that. I know we're kind of running out of time, but and that's your whole life story, but maybe... We can't encapsulate that, <laughs> baby. So I'm going to have to get you back on the Kiss Room soon where we can actually sit and talk that timeline because I'm fascinated by that. And you've worked with so many great people and had great success with music. That's a fascinating story that we probably don't have enough time to cover. These these blanket, these blanket uh, interview slots are really short. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> That's my gene imitation. <laughs> That's a good oh, one. Yeah. Rick Fox, thanks for joining me in the Kiss Room. I really appreciate it. You're in the Kiss Room on Monaco Radio, where music and minds meet.
are back here at Nashville Rockin' Pod 2021, and I am joined by producer, mixer, engineer, you all know his work. Toby Wright has worked with Alice in Chains, Metallica, Seven Dust, Korn, Ozzy Slayer, Kiss, of course. You're listening to The Kiss Room. We're going to talk a little bit about that. Toby Wright, welcome to The Kiss Room. Oh, thank you very much. Appreciate it. I'm thrilled to have you here. And really, one of the things, obviously, anybody that listens to The Kiss Room knows that we broadcast from Montgomery County Community College. We have an excellent sound recording and music technology program. So I really, first, I want to pick your brain as someone who has done so much. A lot of these students are at the start of their journey. Talk about the start of your journey. How did you get started in this? Wow. Um, I started with uh, at Electric Lady Studios in New York City. And um, quite by accident, actually. I was, uh, my roommate and I were hanging out in New York, and I was going to the Institute of Audio Research, and uh, which is an affiliate program of NYU. And, um, you know, he and I got drunk one day and we're like, we didn't have any money. And we're like, what the fuck are we going to do? Like, you know, I hope I can swear. Sorry. Um, and, you know, and what are we going to do? And he's like, let's get some jobs. How about that? <laughs> Imagine that. I ran to the other end of the end of the apartment, got two phone books, threw one at him and said, all right, you started Z, I'll start at A and let's see who gets the job first. You know, competition is always great, right? So he started there. I started at A. Um, about 15, 20 minutes later after making a phone call, or three or four or eight of them, I don't remember, um, but you know, then I had an interview at Electric Lady Studios, which was Jimi Hendrix's place. Now, let's take a step back even further. How did you know this was a career that you want? You're in New York going to school for it. What led you to that? Uh, my dad, really. Okay. Um, he was a professional saxophone player. He ran Lincoln Center for the Performing Arts, um, and so I used to go there all the time and, you know, be hang out with him. Uh, the thing that really got me into the re recording studios was when he went to make a uh, some kind of a recording with his uh, saxophone quartet, and that was in Richmond, Virginia. I remember being in the studio and watching that guy twirl all those knobs on that big old thing over there, whatever that was called. I didn't know, and um, <laughs> but I I, I I I heard him manipulate the sound, and I was like, wow, that's really cool. And I walked out of there. I was like, Dad, what's that? You know, he goes, I don't really know. I just play. I was like, oh, okay. So when I ended up at IAR, um, you know, then consequently into Electric Lady, I, you know, learned how to fix the gear. So I knew exactly what every single one of those buttons will do. Okay. So a lot of the, a lot of times the, um, what, what, you know, the misconception that people have is, I'm just going to be in there, get in there and record. Well, I, I was taught a very valuable lesson very early um, by a man named Sal Greco, um, and he was the um, chief maintenance engineer at Electric Lady. And so he said, he, you know, came time, I was an intern, I was there for $5 a day, and he came up to me and he said, you know, it's my, it was my turn to be interviewed to what I want to do and move on from the internship. And uh, he's, you know, he said, what do you want to do? I said, I want to be an assistant engineer and I want to, you know, be a producer eventually. And he said, well, let me tell you the success rate. It's really, really low. Um, about 20 minutes later, he gets, while we're talking, he gets a call and uh, he's got to go up to Studio C. And uh, the Rolling Stones are up there. They're doing Tattoo You. Well, all of a sudden, there was no sound. Something's wrong. So he has to, you know, the maintenance engineer has to come in and figure out what it is and fix it. Well, he figured out what it was. It was a button that was hit, a mute button. And, uh, you know, the light had blown There's out or something weird. Button. Right. <laughs> and so the, uh, the assistant at the time got, uh, got the wrath. Right. He said, you should have seen that. You know, so on and so forth. I heard the yelling all the way downstairs. I was like, man, I do not want to be that guy getting yelled at. 
So he came back down and he was furious. He was, you know, just in his thing. And he's like, so, um, do you want to be that guy? And I was like, no, I don't want to be that guy. Hell no. I don't want you after me. And he goes, I think that you should be in the maintenance department and learn how to fix all the gear. That way you never are, you know, you'll know when is there something wrong with it, first of all, and then you'll know how to repair it. You'll know how to patch around a session. You'll know how to do anything in the studio that you need to to keep that session rolling. And I was like, that's awesome. Okay, I'm going to join you. I joined him for uh, about a year and a half, and then I made my way out to Los Angeles because I got sick of the grayness of New York City and the weather and all that nonsense and uh, made my way out to Los Angeles where I ended up building three or four studios. That is fantastic. I think that advice right there, be able to fix everything. Right. And you'll always be in demand. That's right. Because somebody can't figure out what buttons press. Then you just save the Rolling Stones recording session. Right. Exactly. <laughs> it wasn't me, though. It was, it was Sal. You know, now, so. thinking about that, obviously, just to kind of step back, Electric Lady, the number of like legendary people walking through there, what are some of the first things that come to your mind of such an iconic studio that's been the center of so much good music what kind of things come to your mind oh man just just being there was uh, amazing um you know and learning the history and then you know being down in the basement and accidentally finding tapes um you know there was a whole uh just you know and and i and i uh just got mary uh campbell who was the studio manager for many many years i got her her job there when i was leaving so <laughs> I have a long history and a long, you know, uh, connection with Electric Lady, um, you know, and, and it's it's a it's a beautiful place, and you know, unfortunately, it's not the same as it was back then. Uh, now nowadays, it's it's changed quite a lot. I don't even know if they're open anymore, you know, due to the 2020 bullshit. But you know, at the same time, uh, you know, jeez, uh, uh, <laughs> that's all that I can say. So you it's made the transition thing. from New York to LA. Yes. What's the what's the vibe different? I mean, like you said, gray New York, right? Sunny California, sunny LA, <laughs> and it was it was the it was the eighties. Okay. So you know whatever happened in the eighties with all the eighties hair bands and music, and I immersed myself right into it, right place, right time. Right. Um, you know, I was working at Cherokee Studios. I built one on one studios uh, where where Metallica and I recorded and Justice for All, uh, and they went on to go back there and, and record the Black Record. Um, so you know th that studio. Is a very amazing room. It's about 50 by 50. It's an all oak room, and it it actually resonates when you hit the drums in there. So it's it, it was built um, with that in mind, and you know a lot of uh, it's kind of like a violin, if you will. Imagine a little tiny drum kit inside a violin. Right. You're going to get that resonance of that violin. So this this room is the same way, and it was designed that way. So now thinking about that, obviously, like you said, right place at the right time. The laundry list of bands that you had worked with uh -huh. is enormous, and uh, and you mentioned that it's the hair band, which I was I love all that stuff. What bands come to your mind? Best, worst, toughest, craziest. Oh, well. <laughs> now the eye roll that went with that—you can't see it on the radio. I think speaks volumes. <laughs> it does. It does. I mean, I have I have crazy stories that, you know, a lot of them. Yeah, you don't want to really tell. It's it's a lot of fun. <laughs> right. Um, what know, happens in the studio stays in the studio. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and, you know, there's, there was a lot of, you know, we had a lot of fun in the studio. And, you know, it's a, it's a, it was a place for people to get creative. So whatever goes along with creativity and whatever is, is you know, you, you do to draw out your creativity, that's awesome. Because 
you know, and it doesn't matter what people think of it. It's not there to be judged. <laughs> right. Right. And it's just there as, a, as an artist will just, you know, reach into their pocket and, you know, pull out a, what do I got in my pocket right now? You know, oh, a dollar bill. Okay, what can I do with that dollar bill? Well, let's see. <laughs> you know, whatever. Right. So there's a, there's a ton of things that, you know, it, it's all about the creativity at the end of the day. You know, and, and really for me, one of the most interesting things, you started out as an intern, and right. that's how you're learning. Now you're established yourself, and now you have the switch from analog and maybe old school, now digital. Pro Tools appears, it's a whole new kind of a landscape. How did you adapt and learn all that? Wow. Um Slowly. Slowly. <laughs> um, I was one of the beta testers for Pro Tools back in the day. We had a, um, it was Avid at the time, and um, they parked a, a machine in the studio. I, I was not a computer guy at all. I never learned to type in high school, and I right. was out smoking weed when, you know, <laughs> when my typing class was going on, because I was like, I'll never <laughs> need to know how to type. Yeah, right. Wishful thinking. So <laughs> I, I, I'm a hunting pecker, as they say, <laughs> um, when it comes to the keyboard. But, you know, I got a little better these days. But anyway, um, <laughs> it, it's a, it, I forgot the question. <laughs> so, I mean, really, I, I, like, it's funny because we started off, when I started just teaching it, oh, yeah. we're cutting and still cutting with a razor and tape. Sure, but now sure. if I had a box full of razors on my desk, they'd ask if I was okay. Right. You know, right. like, oh, is something a matter? But, like, so you really, like, you're already a professional, and now this whole other kind of way to work is moving in. Like you said, as a beta tester, you're touching Pro Tools when it's a dream. Right, exactly. And now it's like, I mean, you can't even almost think, people just you know, can't think without the digital. But at the time, how did you kind of react to this new movement of, okay, well now it's digital and, as opposed to analog? Right, so I'm a, I'm a very accepting kind of a person. Um, and you know, what happened, what happened with, the, with the beta testing was that it was 16-bit at the time. And so you know, I had a drummer in the studio, we had our tape machines, um, and so what I wanted out of the whole experience was it to not sound different from the input, like out in the room, the, the actual sound of the drums, through the console, to the tape machine, and you know, then uh, consequently into uh, Pro Tools. Well, when I played it back, they blindfolded me, and with the 16-bit, every time I could pick it out, I kicked it out of the studio, goodbye. And so then I said, come back when you got something better. Okay, they came back with 24-bit. Right. I could not for the life of me tell the difference. Wow. Input, input tape, uh, 24, I can't tell the difference. You guys win. Okay, great. So I adapted it at that, at that time and learned how to use it really well. And, you know, that takes a little while sometimes to learn such a compact complex program. And I think it's, you know, to those students who out there, you know, who have never been in a studio with analog, it's going to seem very foreign to them, right? You can't loop anything. You can't redo anything. You can't uh, command Z things. Right, you, know? you got it. <laughs> you can't. You either have to erase it and redo it. And this is where I get into, you know, the creativity thing again. If you know how to play your instrument, you're fine with recording on anything. Right. Right? It could be a, you know, stone. Who cares, right? As long as it captures the essence of what you're doing in your creativity. Now that's, I think, one of the things, I mean, I, obviously I'm running out of time with you, but I'm fascinated by that. I love so far the journey you interned yes. at $5 a week. I know, a day. People need, a day, yeah, okay, still, so you're, you're really paying your dues yes. and working your way up and learning as you go. 
Yep. And so what, if, was there one piece of advice that somebody gave you along the way that a student now would benefit from? Passion. 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 Um, follow your passion always. And I think that, you know, no matter what you do in life, follow your passion. Uh, you know, we all have to make money. We all have to have, you know, that thing that pays our bills and all that kind of stuff. And maybe that's not your passion right now, that, but you just have to pay the darn bills. Great. Keep doing it. But also make time for your passion because at the end of the day, that's what's going to make you the happiest as a human, right? Uh, I'm very happy just being in sound. I have this beautiful sound healing company uh, called Tomes.com. Yes. Um, it's spelled T-A-U-M-M-H-O-M-S, and that's .com. And come and visit us, and it's all about sound healing. And so I've gone from, you know, recording some of the hardest bands in the world to, you know, sleeping better and my health. And so what happened was I got into a car wreck in, you know, at the end of right. 05, 06, I can't remember at the moment. Um, and doctors were not helping me. And so I took to the internet and I found this thing that I didn't know existed at the time called sound healing. And being a producer and, you know, recording dude, I had my studio in Woodland Hills, California at the time. And I went in there with this uh, research that I had done and I put together, um, you know, what now lives as, as tomes and, and, uh, and all natural tonality. Um, if you go on the website, you'll check it out and see that, you know, there's a, a boatload of titles on there that can help you heal. And we all heal uh, mostly in our sleep when we're in REM, okay? This will help hold you down in REM longer, and so then consequently it'll help you heal for whatever. Um, I, I use it every single night, and my focus, my concentration, and all that is way up from where I used to be. I used to have a little bit of ADHD and, you know, be scattered all over the fucking place because I wanted to just do everything in life, right? And I'm that kind of a guy, but now I'm very focused on what I need to do on a day-to-day -day basis, and it really, really helps. See, now that's all fantastic advice. Because it's the KISS room, I have to take you back a little bit. I want to talk about Carnival of Souls. Excellent. What was going on? I mean, obviously, at that time, Carnival of Souls is the reunion tour is happening. KISS is on top of the world again, touring with the original lineup. And in their back pocket, they're working on Carnival of Souls. Right, right. Take us back into, like, what was the vibe with the band She's giving me the wrap-up, but I'm the last one of the day, so we're going to take two more minutes just because I feel like I'm going to get yeah, a great story out of you, <laughs> is the fact that... So what's the vibe at that point with KISS? Uh, the vibe at that point was we were making this great record um, that we, you know, we, had, we had worked really hard on, writing all the songs. You know, I, I wasn't so much in on the songwriting process as you know, Bruce and Kurt Cuomo and Paul Stanley and you know, everybody in the band. And so I came in as the producer, and I was... Uh, you know, by uh, recommended by Bob Ezrin. Thank you, Bob. Um, right. And, um, you know, Gene wanted to make a, a quote-unquote grunge record at the time. And so, you know, I guess they picked me because of my association with Alice in Chains and other Seattle-type bands um, that were doing this darker type of music. So, you know, Gene, he just wants to sell records, right? And, you know, God bless him. And so when we got in the studio, we were doing all this. And then all of a sudden, he gets a an offer, 100 mil, to do the, the makeup tour and he took it and so when he walked in the room and announced this the, the vibe went from oh we're doing this kick-ass record to, right oh, what are we doing here but we finished the record right and thankfully and because I think you know personally speaking it's it represents a, a snapshot in time for kiss that if that weren't released that 
you know, you wouldn't have out there in the reference of Gene, you know, just pushing this to try and, you know, help his band and, you know, to get into this new movement of stuff that's going on, right? Because, you know, Kiss was around since, what, 76, 78, right. whatever it is. And, you know, they had some of the best and most iconic songs of me growing up. You know, the guy's a legend. The band's a legend. I'm in the studio with him. Wow, what a, an amazing, exciting experience. And now, I mean, that's the thing, in a way, like, you know, you're at that point very successful. You've had a, a string of really big hits with bands. What's it like when you go into the studio with a band like Kiss that's had, obviously, also equally kind of a long run of being successful? How much do they listen to you as a producer? Like, are you able to say, Gene, let's do this? And were they listening to you? On a team, there is no I. <laughs> I like it. That's all I got to tell you because, you know, when, when I step into a band situation, even, even, a, um, you know, even a, a solo artist situation, there's always a team there. Right, and so I just kind of flow in and make myself a chameleon and absorb their vibe, whether it's in their hometown or my hometown or wherever the hell we happen to be. That you know, you just have to get in there and get into their minds, and that's what I do as a producer. You know, I'll, I'll get into your mind as a performer, and you know, I just want to bring out the best that you have to offer, and that's what I try to do with all my artists, including legendary artists like Kiss. Right, and that's that's what I think is makes a really good producer. You know, like, you know, there's tons of them out there, and I love all these guys who get in there because I've I've been mentored by some of the best in the business, and you know, all, to all those guys, thank you. You know what I I'm mean? I'm glad you said that because I feel like finding a mentor on your way, and listening to them is very important. Absolutely. And I've been lucky to have a couple people in my life that steered me in the right direction, and they might not even know it. That's their that's what they're doing that day. Amen. But it means a lot to to me at the time was it was advice that they might have just kind of thrown out right. and it changed my life. Right. So I'm thrilled that you said that. I'm really thrilled that you would take so much time to talk to me today and give so my much pleasure. good advice that I feel like our listeners and definitely our students at Monco can take away from and learn. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. It's so. my pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Me. And you're appreciate listening it. to The Kiss Room on Mako Radio, where music and minds meet. Yeah.
Army, we are back and we're having the best time ever here at the Nashville Rock and Pod Expo 2021. I am joined right now by John Billings. John, we have a lot to talk about. Yes, I have, sir. I have uh, notes that go from a pretty good distance because the thing that started, obviously, we are focusing on Kiss. And I love that your story starts <laughs> as a young man playing the cello. <laughs> <laughs> and then you hear pre-kiss. Kiss. That's right, buddy. Pre-kiss. Talk about that. No, I was a kid. I was a, a musician. Sixth, seventh grade. I was all deep in cello so I could get out of class. But I loved it. I loved playing music. At the same time, all my friends are listening to this band called Kiss. And I got hooked. It's like a drug. And I thought the coolest guy in the band was Gene Simmons. And, of course, we would agree with that. And you go from playing the cello to playing the bass. That's right, dude. And rock and roll. I, I realized really quick, everybody in the, in the area that I lived in were all playing guitar. And I played a little guitar, too. But, of course, if you're going to go play with guys, there can't be 10 guitar players. And then you have these little groups of guys that are together, and they make their little bands, right? Well, they, none of them had bass players. So I was like, here's the deal. I'm going to play bass, and I'm going to be in every band. And... I wanted to be like Gene Simmons. Gene was my, that's who I listened to for bass. I listened to Gene. Now, take us back in time. First Kiss song that you learned. I think it was probably Detroit Rock City, even though I still to this day can't play that lick like Gene does. <laughs> I can't play it nearly as, as clean as he does. And then funny enough, uh, one of the ones that I played on bass, and you're going you're gonna to be like, I can't believe you're saying this, John, was... Um, I was made for loving you. Right. Which is actually the coolest bass line ever. <laughs> Absolutely. That whole song is based on that cool yep. bass line. 
You know, and it's funny when you think about it coming up that I, and I remember, and I steal this from one of your other interviews, but you said you don't get the girls playing the cello. No. <laughs> Of course not. <laughs> and of course I thought not. that was a great quote. And I mean, really, so at that point, like you said, you're going to be in every band. What That's styles right. were you playing? I was playing. I started off, of course, with rock and roll. And then and now we're talking late 70s for me. So, of course, I'm listening to Peter Frampton, and I'm listening to whatever's on the radio. And in my area of Virginia, Southern Rock, you know, dominated the radio. So I'm learning Molly Hatchet, and, of course, every Skinner song known to mankind. And along that journey... I, you know, when you play with, as you know, when you play with different people, you, you start to assimilate their likes and dislikes. Right. And I run into a drummer, Lee Moore, and Lee's like, you got to check this, this prog stuff out. <laughs> yes. And Rush, listen, this guy's Getty Lee. And, I, and I, 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 I bought right there, I bought into all of it. And I became a huge prog fan. And now the bass player is playing lead bass. <laughs> and you're talking right there like... R- Late 70s, yeah. early 80s, you're talking some of that great stuff. Oh, yeah. I mean, Rush is on fire. Rush and, is on fire. Oh, and that's yes, great. Chris Squire is just killing it. And Gene's always there. Don't, don't get me wrong. But that's the bedrock of it all. See, I love the fact that anytime somebody, especially as a musician who's had a nice long career, that it starts with Kiss. And I love that. And I mean, obviously, <laughs> worked in with then the Monkees. Mm-hmm. And when you think about the 70s, can there be bigger icons than Kiss and the Monkees? That's exactly you right. You got Donna Summer on the yeah, list. Talk yeah. about that. Who are some of the Donna. people that you work with, and what were some of the things you learned along the way? Donna was my very first. She, she popped my, my professional cherry. <laughs> I had been in L.A. for eight years. I'd done what I thought was some cool stuff, but it... it it didn't add to my career. There were fun things that I got to go, wow, I got to do that. I got to play with, you know, Vinnie Moore, and I got to play with David Chastain and Michelangelo and, and Kurt James. And he's, it was cool. It was all great, and I was, I'm proud of all that. But it didn't get me anything in my bank account <laughs> at all, and it didn't really lead to another experience. You know, you hope that you'll step up in your career. Right. So I'm, when I left L.A. with my tail between my legs, I got to Nashville, and a month later I was in Brazil. With wow. Donna, going what, and, and I was on a ride that I had no clue what I was doing. I didn't know. I didn't. Why am I here? Why am I? Why am I on this gig? And, you know. And I and I'd always played R and B and funk, so it was an easy transition musically. But it was just a weird thing. Like like two few months ago, I was playing in the Atomic Punks, <laughs> right. and here I am. I'm playing you know Bad Girls. Oh, but fantastic. I loved it. I was with her for 16 years, and then That's fantastic. in the off times when because you know, they don't all these artists don't stay gone all the time. Right. Uh, I would go out and work with Rick Springfield and, and different, you know, country artists, Winona Judd. And so now there's actually a question that, I mean, I am not a frequent flyer. And I just flew in here to Nashville, and I think in the last 10 years I've flown five times. But you're on the road. Yeah. How do you prepare? Like, I must have checked my bag a hundred times. Do I have all the cables? Do I have my headphones? Does everything work? And then you're going through the airport and blah, yep. blah, blah, blah. What was that like? I mean, like, how do you? How many times were you checking your bag? <laughs> Man, I. You look at my wife right next to us. She knows not to talk to me for the for 45 minutes before we leave the house because right. I have it's burned in. It's muscle memory. And if she goes, uh, you know, should we get so and so to cut the grass or should we? Did you pay that bill? I get off train and something gets left. So she just knows. Give me 45 minutes. I don't even need that much. I can do it all in 15, but I like to take 45. So I like to ease into it. But it's just muscle memory now, and and less is more. You reuse when you can. Let's be honest here. Take your little plastic bag for your undies because you don't want to reuse those, and and make it small so it's easy on you. It's right. easy. That's great. I mean, that's, that's a funny thing. It's just because it's so fresh in my mind because like when they. 
they want to see every piece of equipment in my bag oh, it's yeah. all the recording stuff but they want you to keep moving yep and then it's like then your belt's coming off and the shoes are coming I off. I do the same as you. I bring a bunch of gear with me on the road to track. I do video. So right. I take all that crap. But what I do is I'll check a bunch of it, and I know that they, cables bother the TSA. Right. TSA does not like cables. So if you dress them neatly or carry some in your check bag, that'll get you out of some of that trouble. Well, that was the funny thing. The guy starts asking me, and I'm referencing every piece of equipment <laughs> the number like it's this microphone and, 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 and yeah. like okay keep going yeah. <laughs> I and think then, I annoyed them a little well, bit when you leave Nashville you have a lot less trouble with that because right, everybody in Nashville is leaving with a Pelican <laughs> right. case full of gear <laughs> and they so they just gear. go Wait, yeah, go go on <laughs> next so now think of me up about your journey you make it from you make it to LA which obviously at the time you're talking probably the middle of the 80s right yeah that was, was everybody's destination that's right what gave you the balls to pick up and go to L.A.? Loss. I lost a gig. I lost every gig. I had been working in Virginia since I was, I got my first professional paying gig at 16. And from 16 to 20, I had just bounced around in different bands. I played jazz. I played R&B. I was in wedding bands. You know, doing working, working man stuff. Not really showcasing an original right. music. It was all be here at, from 7 to 11, wear your tux, <laughs> right. and learn uh, uh, learn a, a boogie-oogie-oogie, and you'll be fine. <laughs> and, and get paid. And that's what I did for all that time. But in Virginia, it was a small market. And, you know, I left this band because this guy and I didn't get along, or this this band was doing something that I couldn't, I couldn't be on those dates, so I had to leave them. And after four years, you've left the four bands that are in the whole state that are making money. And right. I was at that place, I was at that place where, I got to do something. And I had been going to L.A. on summers since I was 14, going to Orange County, which I thought L.A. was Orange County. <laughs> so I'm a kid thinking that all the lawns are manicured. My cousin, I had a cousin there, and she has a beautiful little house. And I'm thinking, this is how life's going to be. And life was not like that when I got to Hollywood. And I did what every dumbass does. They moved to Hollywood. I lived on Sycamore in Hollywood, which is now a little mini mall. And I lived in this building called the Sycamore Lanai. And it was, we lived in a dead guitar player's apartment. He was a oh, jazz wow. guitar player. We used to get his mail. Ah. And he died in the pool of our place. So that's how my story started. Oh, my I, God. I didn't, you said move up to L.A. It felt to, like, to me, it felt like I moved down. Wow. I didn't feel like I moved up until I left, came to Nashville. So then when you, and you leave, you head to Nashville. At some point, you end up with Donna Summer. Just, yeah. I mean, we're running out of time, but obviously, think about some of the tours that you were on. Best, worst, craziest. Donna Summer's stuff was pretty crazy because her fans were out of control and you're there with her at the height of it no i was i was actually on her restart of her career okay she she kind of dropped out for a little while right. she had some bumps in the road with her label with geffen and was coming back doing corporate work and starting to come back in casinos trump used to hire us we used to play trump trump places all over the place we were, they were keeping us busy and that gave her a momentum and i got to see towards the end of that time, I got to see the fanaticism come back. Right. And the f crazy fans, Rick Springfield fans. I always talk about them because they are, they are like, they're animals. <laughs> and I mean that in the nicest way. But they are, they're, they're middle-aged women with jobs and money. They are dangerous. Right. And they come to all the shows. They bribe hotel staff. <laughs> they want to get to Oh, yeah. Them. They want to get to them. Oh. It's amazing. So now, obviously, we're running out of time a little bit. But uh, now your lovely wife is here. Amy, you yeah. You're on the, the, the wind down. So how do you make the transition from on the road, bass playing, to a business owner? Unfortunately, I'm doing all of the above, which oh, is not good. Right, that's a lot. <laughs> I'm having a conversation about not doing too many hats, not wearing too many hats lately because I'm wearing too many hats. It? 
Well, you have a partner like her that goes, look, I'm, I've got this part of the business. I got this. You just come in and help out now and then help me with this and that. She said you take out the trash. I take out the trash. <laughs> in the last year, it's amazing company, Pearl Drums, because everything stopped for me in one. Oops. Oh. Are we out of tape? We're still going. Did, did we get to the end of the reel? I think we're stepping on something. <laughs> there we go. I, it's amazing company, Pearl Drums, because I do video. Uh, on this, I've always done video on the side of the, as a, just a side thing. Pearl hired me a year ago and put me to work as a videographer. That's and great. that's been beautiful. I brought some money into our house and gave us some stability while we waited COVID out. But the bar was a place to have, it wasn't so much to be a bar. A bar is uh, the vehicle for it to be a venue to support music and musicians and people's stories. I watched a lot of the videos from your place when uh, you had yeah. like Phil Shaw, yeah. Monica. Oh my God, they they're being tomorrow, yeah. They're great. And it was like, so that's where I first heard about your place. And then, uh, so I'm actually thrilled as I researched more and more, you know, to kind of get your history. And I think that's fantastic, especially coming off this last year. Oh, my God, yeah. When having a business where you have people. Oh, we opened nine months before oh the shutdown. Oh, my God. It so, was insane. It was insane. But, look, you made it out. You're here in Nashville. Enjoy. It's the Nashville Rock and Pod Expo. Any last words you'd like to leave with our listeners? Just thank you so much. And I know you said you have a lot of students. Make make them go back and look at the history of recording. <laughs> All right, sounds good. John Billings, thanks so much for joining us in the kitchen. Thank room. you, sir. Here on Maco Radio, where music and minds meet.
Room, we are back, and I am still here at the Rock and Pod Expo 2021, having the best time ever. With me now, the great Sandy Gennaro. Now, you know Sandy Gennaro from his work with Cindy Lauper, Joan Jett, Bo Diddley, Johnny Winter, the Monkees, and so many more. And I remember when you actually came to Monco and spoke to our class. Sandy, I'm thrilled that you can join us. Thank you very much. It's very, very nice to be here. Thank you. Now, look, I just put off a laundry list of the great bands that you work with. But the thing that I remember, and this is the what I really want to talk to you first, after a multi-decade career, you have the most positive outlook, and I find it so refreshing. And I want you to talk a little bit about that. Now, the thing I remember, Beats. Talk a little bit about the Beats, and how did you come up with that? Well, the Beats, you know, it's, it's an acronym, and it's not, it wasn't a contrived acronym. I just went through my mind, and what are the five elements that are really, really important to be used in a positive way to enable to get enable you to get through life the way you want to get through life? And beats is belief, enthusiasm, attitude, tenacity, and service. The main three are belief, attitude, and a spirit of service. The belief, and this is how, to answer your question, how I was able to maintain decades long career and still live to talk about it, <laughs> uh, is the fact that I always believed in myself. Not from an ego standpoint, but I always work hard at my craft and I serve the music. You have to have a spirit of service. And if you believe in yourself and you have an attitude, a positive attitude, where you realize that when you have problems in your journey, they happen for several different reasons. Not to push you down, but to, to test you to see how bad you want what's on the other side of the problem, A. And B, it might be the universe to say, hey, Sandy, you're not quite ready to play in front of 50,000 people. You got to keep playing in the bars that, sound, that smell like cat piss. And after, after a while... So, you, in other words, how you maintain that positive attitude is that you got to have a belief in yourself. And if you have a strong belief in yourself and a strong work ethic, you think that it's, I always thought, well, I didn't get this gig, it's only a matter of time. You keep working, you get up off the mat, you brush yourself off thinking that it's only a matter of time. And in the meantime, you treat everybody with respect even the common person, even the fan on your way out of that bar with the cat piss, if there's a bum outside 
begging and he wants your autograph because he heard you play inside, give the guy your autograph because that bum might be managing the next platinum artist four years from now. And that happened to me. It wasn't with a bum, but it was a fan in Connecticut. And it turned out that I was nice to him. I went out of my way and it was nice to him. And he ended up turning me on to Cindy Lauper's gig. <laughs> right, and, right. And, and doing Cindy Lauper's gig, I met my wife that I'm still married to. I'm going to see her in about an hour. 36 <laughs> years later. Wow, congratulations. So, so, it's, so how, do I, how, do one, how does one stay in the music business and sustain itself? Your belief in yourself and you believe that you have something to offer any band that offers you an audition. And you learn the material like the material was written. You don't put your own stamp on it. You try to align to the, the existing stamp that's on it. And the, the, you would make a, you put a smile on the face of the artist. Oh, look it's, at that. You know, it's <laughs> bingo. That's fantastic. And I remember you telling that story of Cindy Lauper's manager hanging backstage. And your band is saying, let's go, Sandy. We got to go. We got to go. And you stop to talk to him. And he kind wasn't Cindy, but the key is, it wasn't Cindy Lauper's manager at that time. He <laughs> became, he was some fan, and he asked me to help him get a gig in, in New York City. <laughs> he, was, he was a bass player. I gave him my, car, my card with my home address and said, send me a cassette of your plane and I'll see what I can do. And there's my co-writer in my book, Steve Olivas. Anyway, so three years later, the guy in the doorway says, hey, you... Because I was so nice to him in the doorway, he goes, Sandy, you were so nice to me in the doorway. I want you to play in this band. She's, this woman's going to be the next big thing. We're recording the first record. I, Dave, I don't want to do it. I don't want to join a new band. I'm coming. No, you don't understand. I don't want you to miss this opportunity. So there is the man wanting me to, to, to latch on to this opportunity because I was nice to him three years earlier. And I ended up, at that point, it was the biggest tour of my whole life. And I met the woman that I was married to and the mother of my children, my child, uh, <laughs> as a result of that. So You know, and that, that positivity, like the last time I, that we had, I had heard you speak, one of the things that I took away, which was the greatest, was never burn a bridge, pull the shade. And, you, and now we're on radio, but you would make that move with your hand, like a shade coming down. Not throwing shade. You kids that throw shade. Don't you just pull the shade. And I use that all the time because it works. I'm not trying to piss anybody off, but there's some people who you just pull the shade. That's right. You know, listen, in, in a fifty three year career, you can imagine you can imagine that I've been I've been ripped off. I've been I've been told stuff and acted upon in a different way. And I could you, you now that's not to be construed as you be a pansy or a pushover. Right. You try to make it right with the person, but once you, if you knock your head against the wall so many times, it's time to move on and, and treat it as a learning experience and just don't carry that hate around with you because that's like putting a cinder block on your shoulder. Just pull the shade. Pull the shade. I love it. He's doing it right Pull now. The <laughs> shade. Me so happy. Pull the shade down on the person and pretend they moved to outer Mongolia with no cell service. So goodbye. I don't want to mention any names, but there's, there's some people I did that with. Well, you know, now look, I know I got to let you go because yeah, you, you got to go do your signing. But I do. quick question. Peter Chris, you work with Peter Chris. Peter Chris, I did. Uh, I, I, being a friend of Doc McGee, uh, the kiss when they reunited sometime, uh, it was like when P Peter and Ace came back, but I, I think Ace had left, but Peter was still with the band. They were doing an Australian right. DVD, with an unplugged gig yeah. with Australia. Uh, 
the band wanted to do, Paul wanted to do some songs that Eric Singer demoed. And uh, so Doc McGee call, calls me and says, hey, go, go over with these demos. Go to Peter's house with a drum set. And so I sat opposite Peter Chris and we went through the songs. And I gave him, I gave him some parts that he liked. That's fantastic. Yeah, and, and, and he called me from Australia and said, hey, man, you, they, they loved me here. Thank you so much, Sandy. I appreciate it. You son of a bitch. I go, what do you mean? He goes, well, I played so well as a result of your tutoring that now Doc wants me to get together with you <laughs> prior to every tour and whatever. But Peter is awesome. I love Peter Chris. And it was a great experience. And I went to his house in Brook Township, New Jersey, for like three times a week for about three weeks. That's it was fantastic. awesome. It was awesome. Now, look, I could talk to you for another hour, but I know, we don't man. have enough another minute i know because i gotta let you go you gotta go meet and greet your fans i do i do sandy Gennaro, thank you for thank taking you the so time much, to man. join us in the kiss room you're listening to the kiss room on Mako radio where music and minds meet there you go baby thank you very much man
Kiss Army, we are back. We're wrapping up our coverage here of the Nashville Rock and Pod Expo 2021. We've had the best time ever. If you've listened through to this whole thing, you've heard great stories, you've heard positive people. We've had the most fun possible. And to wrap things up here, I'm joined by Robert Bentley, who is towering over me in his totally authentic Gene Simmons costume. And from tall, the Candy's Kiss Corner and the and candy. a handful of candy, Candy Burton. I got a handful of candy right now. So, <laughs> so we're having the best time ever. Now look, one of my favorite things, you come walking in and the whole lobby was lighting up because everybody sees Gene Simmons. No, they saw the Matt Ford. Well, they saw Gene Simmons. They and and the, the women at the desk were freaking out quite a bit when they saw what looked absolutely like Gene Simmons. Now, one thing I want to know, and I think we've talked about this before, when's the first time you put on the Kiss makeup? Uh, I don't know what the date was, but it was 1970. <laughs> 1970 long ago. Yes, that's right. <laughs> you know, my mom had some of that, um, some of that Maybelline and, and right? baby powder and you know, as far as I knew, Kiss had white face and black on their face. So, you know, I think that's what they used. <laughs> and, and I went for it. And I found out it didn't wash off that easy. And I found out that my mom could figure that out. And I found out that my mom didn't like that. <laughs> <laughs> right. It makes it appealing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I got a feeling from it all right. I didn't sit down for a few hours. So now you've, you've posed for about 8 billion pictures today because I see people snapping pictures left and right. But how have you found this year's Rock and Pod? Uh, well, how in the world can I put this even into words? Uh, bombastic. Bombastic. It's I, bigger I, than I, ever. I'll, I'll take it from Gene and Paul. Bombastic. You know, every year I've been sitting and watching this getting bigger and bigger. You know how Gene said that, you know, after every tour and every new album, his comic piece kept, kept getting bigger and bigger and yep. bigger. Well, Rockin' Pod keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And I'm scared to see what's going to happen next year. Oh. No, it's I'm crazy. Not. No, I'm not. I'm not scared. I can't I'm wait. Not, I'm, I'm, I'm right. I can't wait. I'm thinking, you know, probably next year, it'll probably be at Bridgestone or a football field because you know what? I don't, you know, I don't see how you're gonna handle any more people. Be a lot more. It's, more it's amazing. It's crazy. When, so now, are, you, when are you guys gonna put this on tour? Is what I want to know. You know, I, and I think in my mind, it's always in Nashville because this is where we meet. This is where Rock and Pod is, Rock and, and Rock all too. the way from Canada. So, Candy, I'm going to give you the last word. This is your first ever Rock and Pod. What do you think of Rock and Pod? I want to come back next year. I don't want to go home, and I want to come back next year. That's for sure. It's pretty oh incredible. Gosh. It really is. Everything comes to life. Everybody's here. We've had the best time ever. What's your one takeaway? My one takeaway is relish in the moment and just take everything in. Oh, my God. Like, I can't even put into words how happy I am to be here. Um, you know, it, it's like you said, your Facebook life comes to life. And, you know, I see you guys all the time on social media. I talk to you guys all the time. But being in the same room with everybody, is there's something so surreal about that. It's magic. And it's the magic of Rock and Pod. And you have been listening to The Kiss Room. On Modco Radio, where music and minds meet. You have been one hell of an audience tonight. Why don't you give yourselves a round of applause? I'll tell you something. You know, a lot of bands like to brag about their fans. Now, naturally, 
You better believe we brag about you, but we want you to know something. We want you to know, we know that you are our fans, but don't you ever forget, we are your fans, we love you! Thank you for listening to The Kiss Room. Stay tuned to Montco Radio. Any last-minute crazy things you want to say to conform with expectations? No, but I will say something to anybody out there that's, you know, the weird guy or the weird girl that always has the weird things that they do that their friends put them down for. Don't think it's so weird. Maybe someday somebody will let you give you the chance to make a living out of it. You just stick to it. You'll be weird. You're listening to Monco Radio, where music and minds meet.